Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 205 and I'm Sean. And I'm Ronan and you're very welcome. And this time round it is another review show in which we're going to be going through 10, 12 games. Sean, how many games are we doing? I can't remember. You put the list together. That's a bad start. In which we're going to be going through some <laughs> games and we've played a few of these together. So hopefully we'll have some conflicting opinions, Sean. You know we will. You know we will. Go on then. Kick into something which has actually surprised me with the conflicting opinions that are out on it already. You're going to start with Marvel Dagger. I am going to start with Marvel Dagger, designed by Dane Beltrami and coming from Fantasy Flight Games. Marvel Dagger, I suppose it was it was always billed as the Marvel version of Eldritch Horror, and there are bits of that in it. It's a cooperative game in which you are taking on a baddie, a named baddie. We we particularly took on a Loki in our in our games of it so far. And you're moving around the map, you're doing tasks, you have a character yourself that when that dies it flips over to another side and you get a second character. For instance, I was She-Hulk and then I became Hulk. And you're doing the things that you would imagine you're doing. You're fighting minions, you're trying to complete tasks and in order to beat the big baddie in the end and win the game for yourself. Marvel Daggeron, you sprung this on me because I'd never even heard of it when you ordered it first. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it till maybe a few weeks ago. We always hear, don't tell us about games until they're nearly available. And Fantasy Flight has done this and said, all right, this is going to be available in a few weeks. And it turned up. And people seem a bit suspicious. They're like, where was the builder? <laughs> what, is it a bit rubbish? So they've gone with kind of what I'd like. You told me about it. I'd heard about it. I was excited about it. And a couple of weeks later, it's in the shops. Hence me grabbing it. There are lots of areas to go over. I'm going to start with something with you, Sean, something that people have been complaining about a lot, and that is the price to the component quality. Thoughts from you? I can see where they're coming from, to be absolutely honest. When I saw the price, because when you mentioned it to me, I had a look and thought, oh, I fancy that myself. And in England, it's around the 60, between 60 and 80 pounds, which is a lot of money for a game. I was expecting quite nice components. Is it? Is it a lot of money for a game? Because 60 quid is a standard price for a euro. We're not in 30, 40 quid land anymore. So is 60 to 80 quid any longer an expensive game or is it a, a little bit, a little bit above average? Maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit above average. I think you're living still, in the past, Sean. Stop living. I in the am past. living in the past. I am living in the past. I'm still hankering for those forty pounds, <laughs> big big euro. Dogs. I'm hankering for the twenty pound ones. Castles are <laughs> So it all looks a little bit cheap and thoughtless because it's a very sparse board. It's very white. It's very kind of time storiesy with not a lot of information. It's an on that ugly board. board. Ugly, would you <laughs> The components themselves, they just look and feel cheap. It's standees, which we've both said in the past, yeah, okay, everything doesn't have to be miniatures anymore when they're, when they're done properly. But everything about this game just had that. We've rushed it out a little bit. We've, we've cut costs a little bit. Just felt a little bit cheap and plasticky. I'm telling you, I don't get you. So I've read these comments no. on... No, I read the comments on BGG about that, and I... The cards are a bit functional and plain. 
Oh. The board is ugly. They've used some artwork that's been used previously on little standees and stuff. But I thought the standees were all good. There's a variety of them. There's a variety of heroes. They all have their own bits. There's big plastic bases because the heroes are not only just the hero, but they come with an aspect as well. So you can make an aggression Hulk or a justice Hulk or a protection Hulk. If you've played Marvel Champions, you recognize those. There's two other ones in there as well, which are they coming to Marvel Champions? Who knows? But anyway, so you put it in the color of the thing that you are. If you're aggression, you've got a big red base. It's got custom dice. It's got loads of cards. I was not disappointed overall in what I got for my money. I didn't feel like it was sparse. I just felt like it was a different direction that it had gone in. It did feel cheap to me. No one thing that did make me laugh, though. In, in this day and age when a lot of companies are going away from plastic and trying to give us almost all cardboard products, Fantasy Flight, this is the first time I've ever seen them doing a moulded plastic insert. <laughs> They've gone the other way. See, putting some extra touches in there, <laughs> leaning towards you. The, the one thing, and I guess we're going to come through lots of other issues, but the one thing I say about it in terms of price and value for money is we have only played Loki a few times, and I did want to try and get a game in against against at least the Red Skull, who's sort of the next villain up, and then you get through Ultron and Thanos in this set, to see, because Loki felt like a beginner game it felt like a tutorial and i'm hoping that there's more interesting things happen on the board because there's tons of variety in the heroes there's loads of variety in how you combo together i'd like to get into that co-op and combo in but the loki felt a little bit flat after three games against him the most interesting thing about loki's minions were probably the the durger that could come back to life which was quite funny the swappy swappy place ones that caused us some issues. Nah, that was good. That was good. But even they started to feel a bit familiar, a bit like, oh, okay, we've got those again. There wasn't that much variety in the Loki minions themselves, but I think that's why you mix it up. That's why you play different different minions and different super baddies and what have you. But with some of that, some of that sameness, one of the issues I think I have with it is it's quite a lengthy game. So I'm going to guess like three hours to get a whole game in. And what you're doing... As a team, although aspects of it are very clever, it's all very short term. And you've got to get through three missions in a final showdown. And each of the missions has got its own counter on there that if you don't do it within a certain time, it's just going to make the final showdown harder, or at least that's what we've discovered so far. And for a game that lasts three hours, this is one, the contrast Eldritch Horror, there's no big character development. There's no big, I'm getting better, my stats are getting better, I'm getting more bits. There's no big story development. It felt like four almost separate episodes, and I wasn't sure that we needed to be going through three whole missions that were quite samey to get to the final showdown. And it has occurred to me whether they could have cut some of that out and cut some of the time off the game, because the length and the scope of what's going on in the world feels epic, but as characters, I didn't feel that what we were doing had that long-term aspect to it. There was definitely no real arc to the game. I'll give you that. But I did quite enjoy the timer of kind of doing each task in a, in a certain timer. That kept us on our toes. and We had to constantly work together. There was no sit down and do nothing rounds unless you were absolutely out on your feet. I thought it kept it ticking along nicely. Yes, I was initially disappointed at the lack of real 
evolving your character like you do in Eldritch Horror. But once I got over that, I, I quite enjoyed the timing aspect of it. And I didn't feel, even though it was sort of two and a half, three hours, I didn't feel that it was. I did, will say it started very slow. And I was worried when we first played that first game, I was worried that there wasn't going to be enough. But once that timing aspect kicked in, that's what made it for me. It kept me on my toes and kept me interested in the game. It definitely drives you to a superhero pace. You can't be defensive. And and what's kind of a bit funny is that you do feel fragile while feeling powerful. And that's a hard balance to get. You do feel like, I can do lots of things. I, I can attack, I can do this, you can do that, I can combo with you. And I feel like I'm a hero in doing lots of stuff. But I can also die quite easily, which brings in some threat. So unless there's threat to the heroes, there's, there's no peril there. It's not like you're slogging through, slogging through. I, well, I love that because it feels very comic book. Lots of things happen every turn. The length to the planning, I was a bit... But with the lots of things that you're doing on a turn, to me, the major, major strength of Marvel Dagger is the fact that you have to cooperate together. You have to time each other's powers. You have to be aware of what aspect everyone is, what they can and can't do. There's a resource that builds up on a track called... Uh, team play which you can spend to sort of activate everyone's got one power basically that uses team play to activate and you can use it and the timing of that and I really felt like much more than Eldritch Horror much more than most card games this was a teamwork game yeah for sure and I felt also that more than a lot of games good decisions were instantly rewarded and you could see those good decisions playing out on the board the flip side you could also see the bad decisions in our first game, I think it was a Taskmaster that we had to attack. And what happens with Taskmaster? I might have the name Taskmaster written on my piece of paper with some like <laughs> skulls and crossbones. Um, yeah, yeah. You, when you attack him, he does that much damage straight back to you. He mirrors your fighting style. That's his big shtick. And we were getting a bit cocky. We were doing quite well. We'd had a little break for lunch and we talked about how great we were. And then Taskmaster came along and Ronan said, oh, I'm really good at fighting. Egged on by me. Let's, let's, let's not put any, anything on it. I was like, yeah, yeah, you are much better than fighting. Go and go and fight. Go and beat him. So you absolutely slapped him and killed yourself in the process pretty much. That was a bad choice. Not great play. That's not going to be in the strategy guide. Yeah, and Taskmaster is one of these various levels of baddie. So the big baddie itself is going around. If you attack that and ditch all its hit points it just means that part of its activation doesn't happen each turn and that can be very handy because they're going around trying to destroy five bases around the world that's one of the way you're going to lose if you all die several times you'll all lose there's different ways there's also levels of baddies and you can choose the one two and three level ones there's six different sets you can mix them with any villain the loki themselves has got this set of baddies and that's the ones we we're talking about that depending on how many of them hit heroes at the end of a, t a round it can make you switch places with each other or switch places with Loki and suddenly Loki's not where you want them to be. And so that's quite interesting. But then there's elite bosses that come out because there's an event that happens every round. Some of them are an extra side mission to do, which will cause threat if you don't do it. So accelerates missions failing. But some of them are these elite bosses. And every elite boss I've faced so far has given a genuine problem. So we've got like Sean saying Taskmaster. If you hit them, they hit you back. So instead of piling in with one hero like I did, like an Egypt, you should probably go in and pile in a little bit. Um, Taskmaster came out again, and Sam Wilson, Captain America, has got still got Falcon powers, and they've got a thing whereby if you trigger their 
the superpower, they defend that turn. So we were a timing thing where go in, get Sam Wilson in there, bang, Captain America, shield wings down, then we can all nibble at Taskmaster, and, and then if they hit back for two, only one hits. And that's the sort of cult stuff I'm talking about. There was the yeah. Enchantress. She won't let you defy and advance on lots of missions anywhere near her. So you've got to get to her. And that can mess your plans. You've got a plan going, you go and defy there, I'll do this. Enchantress comes out. Oh, that's a problem. The other one we had was Living Laser. And Living Laser just goes around and absolutely belting the both bases. That I said, if you lose five, you've lost. And they come out of nowhere and you're like, if we don't deal with this immediately, <laughs> that's two bases gone in two turns. And I was... Very happy that when those elite bosses came out and their characters and villains that, that you'd know from comic books, they actually had a real impact on the gameplay. And each problem that came out had to be dealt with. You couldn't just sort of go, oh yeah, that's there over there. It's not a problem. They all, even the simplest ones, march towards their goal and are active within trying to defeat you. It's what you said earlier, it feels thematic, it feels like you are superheroes, because in Eldritch Horror you might say, right, that monster's not really causing us any bother, let's leave him for a few turns, and if we get over there we'll deal with him. In this game you have to deal with the baddies, you have to, you're have a superhero, you've got to protect the people, you've got to go over there, you've got to deal with them, they, they are going to do something that's going to stop you winning the game, almost always. So I I really enjoyed Marvel Dagger Ronan, it was a surprise. I did worry. I was one of the people who were worrying a little bit. They came out of nowhere. I was worrying that did they put enough into it? Have they thrown this one out? And that's happened in the past with Fantasy Flight. They've just chucked things out. But this one felt that everything in it was thematically thought about. All the characters did what you think they should do as Marvel fans. And for me, I think it's it's an absolute winner. So I'm I'm gonna I know you don't like me scoring on these little chatty chatty ones, but I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna give it a seventy eight. I've got a score for all of them, so I knew, oh, oh. I knew you'd want me to. <laughs> yeah, I've got lots of thoughts on Marvel Dagger, Sean. Definitely I am the target audience. It's cooperative, it's Marvel themed. There are some issues with it. The rule book is too glib. Not the only rule book we're going to deal with this episode that was <laughs> didn't give us enough of the rules. I think in a lot of the cases, just using common sense gets you through. If you do like a more completist rule book, that's not here. In terms of difficulty, there's a couple of issues. Two player is the hardest if you only use two heroes, and it's very swingy because you have so many fewer hit points, and certain effects within the game just take a number of hit points off, like the team. So the smaller the team, the more swinging the game becomes. So if you want a more challenging game, then definitely play it two-player, but be prepared that in a three-hour game it can swing. I think the tipping point, if you get that map clear, then you're on top of things, then it can become like, well, right, we're definitely going to get this mission done. It's just about churning through and through a couple of rounds, and you still keep on top of the map. You're just going to defeat the baddie, and you can know that maybe three-quarters of an hour out from the actual end of the game. So the balance isn't exactly there, but again, only haven't played against Loki, I've got to hold back a little bit. The comparisons to Eldritch Horror, it provides a similar framework in which to operate off a world with problems and missions and enemies, but what you do within it is much more targeted and dynamic and less narrative and less long-term planning. Overall, I love the pace of action. I adore the combos whereby Captain America assembles everyone into one space and then Doctor Strange hits off some healing to help us all and then suddenly Captain Marvel does a cosmic beam and wherever it might be, you can really work together and come up with clever stuff. And in every game so far, 
someone else has said to me, if you use your power now, I could do this and then they could do that. And it's, oh yeah. So being aware of what each other do is important. The challenge of Marvel Dagger needs to develop for it to become a top echelon game, but very good so far. I'm already here for expansions. It's Marvel. You know, I'm going to spend money on it. I'm an idiot. And I topped you a little bit with an 81. Very good. And can we not mention Loki not being in the place we thought he'd be? Given respects to one of the games coming up. <laughs> We've done a lot of uh, foreshadowing for that game. <laughs> we have done. We have done. It's not that far away. It's like four points away. <laughs> but anyway, you're going to take us into a, a Mafia War running. I am La Familia, 2023, four-player, only four-player, two- to three-hour game, designed by Maximilian Maria Thiel and published by Foreland Spieler and Capstone Games. This is strictly four-player. It's two by two, two teams of two players, and each of the players is representing a Sicilian family in the 1980s during a mafia war on there. There are four rounds within the game and they're split into action selection and then executing orders which have been placed onto the map of Sicily which represents the vast majority of the game board. The actions change from round to round but in general you're going to be getting money because some actions, particularly big actions, cost you money or using someone else's dobber on there because there are action dobbers and they fill in this little grid and you move them from top to bottom to choose what action you want to do each turn. You can build up drug factories around Sicily, which will earn you money as you go. You can recruit soldiers behind your screen and then maybe place those soldiers into Sicily because at the end of the day, it is an area control game. The board is split into areas with three regions in each of them. And if any one player controls five of those areas or a team controls six at the end of a round or end of half a round, in fact, then they're going to be the winners. You can... Use this big action that costs money. It's one of the reasons you want to get money is you can clear a whole action column and that's going to allow you to upgrade because each of the families starts off with a set of orders which are slightly asymmetric, but everyone has got upgraded order tokens they need to unlock via choosing actions and clearing off their own board. It will allow you to like be able to recruit more soldiers or place more soldiers on the board, but also will unlock these order tokens to go on the board and suddenly we start getting very asymmetric and which family you choose and there's no set teams any color can go with any color will definitely influence how you play and how you integrate with your teammate as well once everyone has done these actions placed a few order tokens into the areas they control on the board we then move on to the second half of the round and then we flip over all these order tokens they resolve in an order an order number uh, you get income first in stuff or put soldiers out on the board and then you get to do attacks. And this is very Game of Thrones style and Game of Thrones is nodded to in the rule book in that when you place an order into a region, when you activate it, it can go into any region around it. You're not directing your attacks at a certain time. Then you're making decisions based upon what you know is coming up and what order tokens you can see. You can sort of do a bomb attack. There are cars and boats you can use to help you attack further away or make your attacks more powerful. Or you can attempt an actual moving of your soldiers, which always costs you some soldiers. When you go in, you can try and overwhelm, you've got loads of soldiers. Or there's a little game of chicken you can do with these three cards against whoever you're attacking. And that means different numbers of different teams come off and you're trying to outguess which of the three cards you're going to play. Similar again to Game of Thrones, but in Game of Thrones, each family has a certain set of cards, which is asymmetric. In this, everyone just has the same three cards and they're available every fight and you're just trying to guess what they do. So you're killing soldiers, you're trying to take over, you're trying to do it within the four rounds. If you haven't, whoever's got the majority of areas wins or there's a capital area and that's the tiebreaker. 
And it's a blend of this Euro, slight economy, definite resource of, of people, of soldiers, mixed together with this very aggressive, I'm going to wipe you off the board, I'm going to attack you where you don't want me to, I'm going to use my boats to zoom around the island and attack you around the back. Four player only, very unusual game, Sean. La Familia, what you got for me? First thing is the theming. I sniffed around this at Essen, and I don't think it made Essen, and or I didn't get to it anyway. I think it wasn't there. I think Maybe, I'm very yeah. excited about it. Yeah, I think they, they didn't. Yeah, get there. and then I realised it was a two by a two against two, and I was very unlikely to get it played. So I kind of let it go. So I didn't really know that much into it. So digging into it, I didn't realise the history behind it. So this war actually took thousands and thousands of lives. Lots of innocent bystanders got involved in it and were murdered and killed by bombs, as you mentioned, driving around car bombs, all sorts going on. And I didn't know anything about this massive war that the the Mafia had. How have they dealt with it? A lot of Italian BGGers have complained that it wasn't dealt as sensitively as it could have been. We've seen things like Freedom, the Underground Railroad, and various war efforts at this war of mine all dealt with a bit of sensitivity about the subject matter how did they go about it it is a very attacky euro game so it's not gone for story it's not trying to reproduce the actual experience or whatever. So it hasn't gone like those games but what i will say did hit me in the first game is after a couple of rounds You've been so enthralled in this Euro and this action selection puzzle and this idea of building up. Suddenly, two or three rounds in, you look at the board and there are no cubes left. The place is empty. You're looking at it going, we have absolutely emptied this place. And it does kind of hit home because I will say that within the mechanisms to attack is very easy. But you're wiping yourself out and you're wiping the other person out. And... You get obsessed with this thing, well, I need to attack, I need to attack. And at the beginning, it's attacks of seven troops against six troops. And at the end, it's like one troop moving in to take an area. There is that feeling there that by attacking, everyone loses. You're almost no better off at the end than you are at the beginning. The only thing you've done is you've wiped out all the neutral people that are on the board. It gave me that feeling of sort of a Pyrrhic victory. Of So I did feel theme within it. Now, they haven't gone out of their way to sort of put that over. But to me, the feeling was there if you've, you've hollowed out this island. Yeah, it was just one of, the, one of the things that sort of leapt out at me. There was uh, quite a lot of complaints about about that. I but, mean, this um, is forty. This is forty years ago. So you're talking about games in the eighties dealing with World War Two, and I know it's within a lifetime. I understand that. At what point can you start making simulations? Are, are Vietnam War simulations are right? Are Iraqi invasion simulations are right? It, it's it, it's a tricky thing to talk about. I don't think. This is the only game that takes on a theme of conflict without addressing all the nuances within it. For sure. The length of the game. Did you always feel like it was exciting? Did you? Did it have any lulls? No way. Not for me. The action selection, and what's good for me, the action selection, is that you have very limited actions. You want to do a million things. You always feel like you're exposed and you're vulnerable and you need more of this and more of that. Oh, I want to get a car on the board. I want to get a boat out. But also I don't have enough troops and there's no troops behind. But I've got no money. So if they make things expensive, you're always wanting lots of things. You're always scrambling. So that never feels satisfactory. This two action system whereby you can take a dobber and move it down and just take an action in sort of a normal action selection way. But also you can pay money to just wipe a whole column out. You have to pay the owners of the dobbers within there. So there's also this chicken thing of, 
well, I don't want to make that wipeout too easy, especially not early in the game and too cheap, because that means you're getting access to your better orders, and they can be vicious because the numbers tend to come down as you get your better orders. So your attacks will go before my attacks, so you'll be able to take out the area for which I'm trying to attack, and you're always on edge. And every time someone else has choose something, why have they done that? What's that order doing in that area? You're constantly involved in it, and then because there are so many options when attacks are going on, you're always looking around and every action by everyone else causes a chain reaction. So I was fully in it. I mean, you're getting it. I enjoyed this game a lot. It did not feel long to me at all. So you mentioned the action selection system. Now, the designer of this, did you ever play Magnastorm in the end? Magnastorm? Uh, yeah, I played it once. It's on my shelf next to me in shrink. Okay, it's the same designer as, as Magnastorm and apparently he's taken the action selection from Magnastorm and transferred it and people are saying that he's done it a lot better in La Famiglia so I suppose if you can't remember Magnastorm how do, how does that action selection system work and is it is it good basically I can remember similarities that didn't jump out at me so I'd have to play Magnastorm again you're right it's been a little while I feel like there was more options in La Familia. It, people who can remember better than me are suggesting that there's a strong Euro been built on for this for the Euro side of it that is correct the Euro side of it works very very well that's all I've got, really. I'm just really interested to find out what your final thoughts are, Renan. It's excellent. It's already a game of the year contender for me. The length to the experience is so rich. You're so aware of what's going on. Everything's like turn order is massively important. Whether your colleague takes it's your first and third to choose actions or your second and fourth, huge difference. Boats which allow you to zip around the, the coast, they're not a factor until they are a factor. And suddenly you have to start worrying about them. It's got the Game of Thrones thing where one order token going in, it might be quite sort of benevolent, but the threat of it being in an area changes what the other team are doing. And you're trying to manipulate their actions and pull them away from what your real focus is. It blends the cop and the competitive. If you're playing in a team, but you're very much competing with the other team. There's an abundance of options and a scarcity of actions you have to consider the theme you have to consider how in your face it is you have to not mind attacking and being attacked and you have to like team play but if you do i think you should reward a very brave decision by a company to bring out a four-player only game and say this is how this plays marvel dagger is not a two-player game in my opinion it should have been three to five la familia is only four and it's brilliant and i have given it an 89 sean Wow. Pushing that 9 out of 10 territory. Very good, very good. That, actually, 89 is in 9 out of 10 territory. I hate to break that. Okay, it's all right. okay thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> he just gave me a look. No, I, I just got a look down the computer. <laughs> no, no, the look, the look was, was a, a look of just resignation about the next game we've got to talk about because I've been dreading talking about it with you. Because I, I reckon... Think- a quick breeze through this game will capture everything I have to say about it. Good, good. Let's just get it over and done with because you're going to upset me and you're going to upset most of the BGGers that have rated it an 8.2. I'll put it out there straight away. Go on, Darwin's journey. Right, I'll go quickly run through it. Uh, Simone Luciani and Nesta Mangoni coming from... I can't remember, I didn't write it down. I'll get back to that. <laughs> Thunderglyph. Thunderglyph, is it? Thunderglyph Games. Griff? Possibly. Maybe. Anyway, Darwin's journey is all about recreating his journeys around the Galapagos and what have you. There's lots of things to do in this game. It's primarily a worker placement game where you're placing your workers down to do various tasks. It starts off quite simple in what you're doing. You've only got four places to place your workers. Well, there's more. There's more, but four main areas. 
one area is to drive your boats along so that you can visit islands and explore. That's that's another action, by the way, to explore and go around and you're discovering species. You're doing lots of different things to get lots of different ways of scoring points. You're also racing against the HMS Beagle, Darwin's boat, and if you keep in front of it, you won't get penalised. You are manipulating your own workers to give them more powers in going into certain areas by taking these wax seals, and there's various reasons for doing that. You're also creating characters that you start to get. There's so much going on. And when you get these new species, displaying them at a museum and you either get money or prestige points. And as the game goes on, the money disappears and the prestige points become more. I will start off with a negative. I think the iconography in this game is almost ridiculous in that it's so difficult to read. I think they've gone for a thematic look to the game. They're dragging you into a Victorian study or an onboard ship study. And that helps in the overall feel of what you're doing. Some of the iconography is hard to see. Some of the iconography is too similar to each other. I, surprisingly, was not as angry about the iconography as you are. When you go around the islands, there's tiny little circles with parts of the iconography in them. And they are those ones that are very similar as well. So you have to literally get up and stare down at it or ask somebody, could you tell me what that says so I can make a decision, please? That really got my gut. It irritated me for a game that costs a lot of money to buy, especially the collector's edition that I got. It's it's not cheap game. No one made you buy that. Don't you bring up how much it costs. No one made you buy that. I will say that was mitigated for me because I had to ask someone all the time anyway. What do I get? What does that do? So it was kind of it was a constant conversation around our table as we played it about hey, that gives you that. Don't forget you've got this. That's also coming up, and you've got this other. So it was a constant. Like, everyone was telling you on your turn all the things you were unlocking anyway. So I guess that mitigated it. Right. I pretty much enjoyed everything else about the game. Now you know you've got major issues with it. So let's start talking about those. What's your first issue? Don't you put words into my mouth. I will put words in your mouth. You, you threatened to put your boot through this. I'm going to say the money system is very interesting. But, like lots of things in the game, it's very hard to grok that before you've played it through once. And there's many things that filter into this being very hard to play on your first game. The iconography, yes, is part of it. The second part is actually something I think is quite interesting in the game but leads to a difficult first play or at least a difficult start to your first couple of plays is that... Money comes in waves and you can get a load of money in at the beginning of the game and you go, oh, I made a load of money. And then you spend it and you spend it to unlock action spaces or to do whatever you want to do. There's lots of ways to spend money. And then you go, okay, I'll get some more money a little bit down the line. We spent all your money. You go, hmm, it's a little bit tighter to make money, but it'll come in another wave that isn't quite as powerful as the first wave. And you'll go, oh, I've got a little bit less money or everything's a little bit tighter now. And then by the time you get into your third wave of money, it's starting to form into a bit of a dribble, less than a wave. (laughs) And that arc of money tightening up and tightening up, and not just the money you can make, but the money available within the game, very, very difficult on your first play to understand or second play to get into that rhythm of money within the game. And then also it's very hard to understand that actually something costs you one gold more, like buying a seal, one more than one that someone else got, and doing that two or three times, that three gold, you can never get it from anywhere else. You've got a limited, finite amount of money you're going to make in this game, 
And if you don't budget properly, that can bite you further in. You can stall very much on your turns where you're like, I just can't do much. I don't have any money. I'm going to have to do this sort of slightly complicated thing that's very inefficient in order just to get a few quid in to just start this ball rolling again. Yeah, I will say that money is very important in that when somebody goes into a worker's basement area, like the main of the main four, then everybody else has to pay to go into that area following them. So they can effectively block it off if someone doesn't have money. So you do have to legislate for that and you do have to plan to have that money if you really want to do an action and you're not going to be first player on the turn but i mean it's not just getting in first what about you need to have combos of seals to take certain actions but the way that you can make take that action and it's very important to to start off well in this game you can actually unlock that action and by unlocking it despite not having the seals to use it you get to do the action knowing that and knowing how what's vital to spend that four, five, six money on to unlock, because you can't get to that for a while, or that combination of seals doesn't match with the goals on your characters, because you get bonuses for getting all the seals for goals on your characters, you get bonuses for everything. Working out the relationship between very tight money, the actions I'm never really going to be able to take, how much to spend on seals, this is all very obscure, it's very difficult to work out, and the mistake of one or two gold in your first one or two turns can make a big difference. I'm struggling to think uh, where you're coming from because so especially making a bad start because we found it to be really swingy. We found it that someone would, would go off and then other people would come back and then somebody else would take the lead. That was the way it was for all of our games. It was very swingy in terms of you have a couple of good rounds and you'd be right in it again even if you were way off. There are lots of ways to mitigate against some of the things, like you can mitigate against the penalties of the HMS Beagle, mitigate against the penalties of other things, or make things more enhanced moves for, for your various your projects that you fulfil and stuff like that. If you plan well, you can do everything. You can be right up with the Beagle. You can have loads of spaces you unlock to yourself, so you're getting bonuses when people go there. You can play this game. That's why they needed the expansion. The first yeah. game we played, yeah. our scores were like 98, 110, 118, 200 and something. Wow, okay. We didn't get that. <laughs> so the player who knew the game was able to do everything in the game. And I think that this game is learnable. And it's a case of, oh, yeah, I know how to make a start in this. I know how to get this all rolling. And there's certain things that if you know, I need to do this. It's, it's almost like, not going too far, but a chess set beginning. I keep up with the beagle, I set up what money I'm going to make, I unlock a couple of actions that are going to constantly give me a bit of money, and I'm rolling. And as long as I flick the right pebbles in round one or two, they're just going to cascade for me for the rest of the game. And we definitely saw that, and we looked at it and went, uh, so basically, by the end of round one, we'd lost this game, we just didn't know. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think there was always ways to come back. There's so much you could do in this game. I thought we felt it was really swingy. There was no way of telling until quite close to the end of the game until someone might stick their nose in front right at the end, get to the end of the islands where they explore, which is quite big points, or fulfil some of their objectives, which were right towards the end of the game. So, yeah, I, I think we've had quite different experiences. Okay, downtime. So when you take an action, you can unlock another action. 
maybe that's a move along a, an island path or whatever. By moving on the island path, you can unlock another action, which can unlock more of a chain reaction. In doing that, you might fulfill the gold of your character, which flips it over and lets you do another thing. I got to seven chain reactions on one turn. There's a couple of issues that causes me. Okay, that is a thing. That is an aspect of a game whereby you take something that cascades and goes and unlocks and goes and it becomes match three, it becomes Candy Crush, this drops into place, that drops into place, this drops into place. One of the things for that is downtime because then each player's turn becomes longer. People can't plan that many links. So you're all sitting there watching someone work out this individual puzzle that is a chain however long it goes and you're like, okay. I agree to a point there because you can chain a lot together and this is one of the main issues I had with the iconography is that when you are chaining things, you hadn't planned maybe four links of the chain down that you were going to move on the island. And now you have to look to see what that iconography is that you can't really see and you haven't been able to think about because you can't really see it out of your peripheral vision. And then you're thinking about what to go. Yeah, it might take a little bit of time, but gosh, did I, did I feel proud of myself when I did chain some of these things together and when they did happen like that and I had planned for them. It's just such a good feeling. You feel really smart for about 10 seconds until someone else does it. But still, I think it's a great moment in any game when you chain things together. It's one of my favourite aspects of gaming. So that's where I come at it for this. I, I forgive the slight adding on of time in, on your go because I'm so happy about what I'm doing when I'm doing it. Whereas to me... It feels like a match three game. Off, I knew I was matching the greens. Mm -hmm. I knew the blues would drop down, but then the next lot are just the way things fall. Well, there's a yellow, there's a pink. Oh, greens again. Oh, blues. Oh, pink. Oh, I've got some greens, and I'm just sitting there, and the game is just going ding. Have some stuff. Ding. Have some stuff. Ding. Have some stuff. Ding. Have some stuff. Ding. And I'm just honestly that bores me because I didn't plan for all this stuff. I didn't know. I haven't put a coherent plan together to get it all. It's just dropping in my lap. And at the end, I've got loads of stuff and I go, oh, well, that was just overwhelming. So it's constant just reset. It's constantly tactical. It's constantly, right, what's the most I can get in this current situation? There's no point looking at the board for the next 10 minutes. I'll come back again and look down and go, hmm, everything's changed. Wonder what I can change this time. <laughs> I, I don't get satisfaction from that. <laughs> a little story. When I first played, the first time I ever played this game, we took it around to Nathan and Terry's and we had a four-player game of it. And Nathan was in an awful lot of pain. He had um, gallstones or something. And he was in absolute agony. Just reveal his medical history to, to <laughs> <Yeah>. the world. <laughs> and he was popping painkillers and he was not a happy bunny. And the first half of this game, I've never... Nathan is Mr. I love everything. First half of this game, he was absolutely miserable. And I think for a lot of the reasons that you were talking about... Then he had a Eureka moment, but halfway through, he realised what he was doing and what his goal was. And what Eureka was wasn't going. Darwin, mate. <laughs> okay, thank you, mate. He had a Finch moment. He had a Finch, he had a Beagle moment. And it, all of a sudden, if we'd have started the game then, Nathan would have rinsed us because it clicked all of a sudden for him. He even said to me, I was like, I'm really not getting this, I'm not enjoying myself. And I was like, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm going, mate, I thought you'd like it. And then halfway through, like, ding, right, I'm doing, ding, 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 and he started chaining those things together. Yeah, just a little, little aside that kind of blended in with what you said. I'm glad that Nathan had a Eureka Finch Beagle moment. <laughs> I didn't. It's got an arc I don't enjoy. To me, you have to set up the, those initial moves. You have to be doing well. 
and you can get behind. It's a cascade game to me. I'm flicking the first pebble and then a load of other pebbles are going to move and I don't know what they are. Neither does anyone know what they are. It drags because people are just getting to their turn and going, right, now what shall I do? I don't have any strategic feedback from it. I, and, and that's, you know, I'm sitting there for three hours playing a Euro. It takes a lot of investment to play well. There's a lot of things to juggle. There are certainly bits of this game that are good. I, I can't even say it's a bad game. I can't say there's anything wrong with this game other than it is a style of game that offers me no satisfaction, a lot of effort and no satisfaction. I know, Sean, I'm not trying to be controversial. I had to genuinely think about this and say, is this a poorly designed game? No. Does it do anything that I enjoy in gaming? <laughs> no. So I don't shout at me. I have I have searched my soul about this one, and I've genuinely, from my enjoyment of playing Darwin's Journey, it's a thirty-three. I just did not have any fun playing this game. Uh, you need to change your BGG rating because I checked it; it's a four. And... You're right; it should be a three. <laughs> Hold on, I'm on it. <laughs> I've had a eureka moment. I've realised... I've seen it through your eyes. You're a cretin. This game is really good. Now, I will add the caveat in that I haven't played with the Fireland expansion, which everybody says that if once you play that, you'll never go back to playing the base game. It does make yeah. me laugh, by the way, that they called that Fireland because it's a Spanish company. It's Tierra del Fuego. And they probably don't know that it's Tierra del Fuego in English as well. But just no, That always had me a little, a little <laughs> chuckle I had about that. Why do I like Darwin's Journey? I love developing the workers to what you need or chasing after those goals for developing the characters. There is lots of engine building. There are lots of combos. I think that the combos are thrilling and rewarding. I think the developing board is really clever because you're, you're slowly developing more options on the board for yourself. So it didn't feel overwhelming at first. As the more options come in, you kind of know what they do and you start utilising them as they come in. Yes, the iconography could be better, but I always love that there's loads of ways to score points. And I genuinely thought that every worker placement felt so important. So for me, Darwin's Journey is a 75. Not great, but good. Almost very good. You are taking us further into the fire. Oh, it's certainly getting hotter. Really. Speaking of building engines. Hey! I was holding on to that one. A quick one, Heat, Pedal to the Metal, 2022, 1-6 to six players, Asgard, Hardin, Granarud, Daniel, Skjold, Pedersen, Days of Wonder. It is a racing hand management game. Each player on a turn and you play simultaneously, although you don't resolve simultaneously, you choose a gear, which tells you how many cards you have to play from your hand. Your cards are numeric. When you play them down, that tells you how many spaces you're going to move on a board. You're racing around a track. The number of laps you do depends upon the race you're doing and the track itself. There's various ones available. There are numbers on the cards, you move that number of spaces. There are some cards that are a rando and you have to flip cards when you play those ones and they'll get stuck in your hand if you don't play them. So at certain points you'll be like, oh, I'll play my randos and get them to move through because your deck will cycle around and around and around. If you finish in certain positions next to or just behind although another card in your turn, you get to slipstream and steal a couple of spaces, which may or may not be good because on each of the tracks, and there are various layouts, there are corners. And each of the corners, there is a line and it says, if you have moved more than this number this turn, you need to take heat. Heat are cards that go into your deck, which would basically block us and don't do anything. If you have all your heat already in your deck, 
and you're told to take more, your car crashes and spins out and you have to start again from gear one and you don't move anywhere this turn and it will just slow you down and you probably won't win, so don't go crashing. In the basic game, you just have these numerical cards and this heat and you're just playing a very simple numbers game. I'm going to suggest anyone listening to this, don't do that. Start with where you draft the more complicated cards in, which allow you to manage your heat better, be able to go into corners quicker if you've got wings, use fuel systems, which will cool yourself down and manage to get heat out of your hand without having to rest or whatever it might be. And race around a map and have fun. Don't play the basic game. Sean, any quick thoughts on heat? Because I am not going to hang around on this one. It's not that much to the game. There really isn't. I just felt that it took from Flam Rouge card system, ramped it up a little bit. But I've got to say, I think I preferred the simplicity of Flam Rouge. I didn't like all the gears and all that business and the little bits and pieces they threw at it. So I, I think I like my racing games a little more simple. I didn't realize you played it. Yeah, I have. I played it. Mr. Jude brought it round and we played it a couple of times. I say. Right. You can rate it if you want, because I think heat is so simple, there's really not a lot to say. <laughs> Firstly, racing games are not, not really my thing. My favourite racing game is probably Monza, because it is I so simple I knew you say Monza. <laughs> Don't ever mention Monza on this podcast again, you weird. Shut up, you. And I thought it was slightly too long. By the end of the race, I was getting a little bit bored. And yeah, I, 55. It's fine. It's okay. Ouch. I thought I was being mean to it. It's a good racing game. It's interactive, it's better with more players. There's an alleged good AI, but I've only played it with six players, so I don't know about the AI, but I'm told it's very good. I would want, opposite to Sean, well, I don't know whether it's opposite to Sean, actually. I would like a simple racing game, or you need to give me more than Heat gives me. And I had fun, and I thought it was good. 73. Wow. I had fun with it. I played it, it was good, I had a good time. I don't need to own it. If I never played it again, that's fine. If someone gets it out, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'll play Heat, I like it. Cool. Right, moving on to another game in which Loki annoyed the crap out of me. It's Lords of Ragnarok, coming from Awaken Realms, designed by Adam Kwapinski. Lords of Ragnarok is the successor to Lords of Hellas. and Is game, it a re-implementation? It's borderline. It's very close to a re-implementation in that it's... <laughs> I didn't expect this. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm being a smart ass. I didn't want you to search your soul on that one. Oh, okay. Sorry. I think it possibly is. It's just they've take, streamlined it a little bit and taken out some of the faff, but pretty much made the same game. So in Lords of Ragnarok, you are heroes with armies, various ways that you can win the game. You've got a map in which you are trying to take areas. You are trying to build shrines and then take control of the shrines or you're hunting monsters. And each of those ways offer you a route to victory. You are placing tokens on the board to take your actions. And you're also, one of the big selling points is you're building up these monuments. And when you build monuments, you are giving yourself the opportunity to upgrade your heroes and your general player board. Shall we start at learning the game? I'd already played Lords of Hellas. A few times, maybe four or five times. I like Lord of Hellas, no, so no surprises. But even I struggle to learn this game, which is almost the same, because the rule book is so vague, and we went through this together. I'm starting to think that a rule book might be an art piece. I think I agree. I think it's a study in minimalism in technical handbooks. <laughs> 
it gives you some words. It's like, this is a mechanism. How does it work? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> they have tried to do a short, snappy rulebook. It's not the first time they've done this, Awaken Realms. It is too short and snappy. While I appreciate the, uh, the move in that direction, you've gone too far. You actually have to put the rules down. Otherwise, it's very difficult. And in certain cases, and certain... Not edge cases, obvious game cases, there's no rule there. For example, if you defeat an army and there is nowhere friendly or neutral for them to retreat to, where do they go? Turns out, according to BGG forums, they die. Is that true? Don't know. That's how we played. Because it's not in the rulebook. And that's certain things that must be covered. To me, as a general thing for Waking Realms, I think that their range of playtesters is too tight. Because their rule books have got a pattern of doing this where there's assumed knowledge and that tends to happen where you don't have enough people from the outside being given the game and the rule book and playing it in front of you and you go in, oh no, that's not how you do that. Oh, that's not how you do that. And they go, the playtester says, well, that's not in the rule book, mate. <laughs> and they needed a few of them. It's a drum that I have banged on quite a few times before, but I think it's genuinely the one area that really lets Awaken Realms down. And it's another one where I think it was page seven was the setup. If you're telling me how to win the game and we're taking over areas and shrines and monsters, show me the monsters and areas and shrines first. Set, let me set up the game first so I can see. All right, there's the areas you're talking about. Oh, that's a region and that's a land. Right, cool. I've got it now. Now I can start. You, to you're coming feisty there. You couldn't point at that thing and tell me what a region and a land is and which is which. I know you couldn't. No, because I said it many times. What is it? I worked out how you do it. It's actually the text on the or the numbering on the board, the, the iconography that you actually look at. The numbers that don't follow each other in any pattern and leap no, around. No, no, show, no, no. But it's the iconography. Right. The iconography is in the colour of the land. So that I know. <laughs> I know what it is. It's you that don't know. You're the one who's trying to act like you know. I know what they were. I did by the end. I got a question for you. Is there a sensible version of the game or is the ridiculous everything's plastic version the one you've got the only version? There's loads of plastic in Sean's version including everything and because everything's plastic everything blends into the shrines but you can't tell them from the towns from the heroes from the armies the monsters the smaller ones even when you're just looking at the board it's very messy and you need to know what areas of towns because that's where you can make your army stronger. You need to know where shrines because that's a win condition. And it was hard to discern what was going on. So is there a version that's got those are clearer with less fancy components? Or is it, no, you just use what's printed on the board because that's, like you say, that's not unusable. What's printed on the board is the only other option. It's either the fancy plastic bits or printed on the board. The shrines, the temples, there are plastic standees for those, but that's it. Okay, yeah, that wasn't... We had to put, like, red discs on the towns to to, to discern them from everything else yeah, because it yeah. just became a bit a bit busy to the eye. Mm-hmm. Indeed. How did you feel about the differing routes to victory? Did you think they were all balanced? How did you know that was next? <laughs> I didn't, but... I think that is the key to the enjoyment of this game. That is this, almost the USP of it, is that it's not a flat area control game. You can win by area control. You can win by targeted area control of certain areas with shrines in. Or there's the whole hunt mechanism going on, which you can hunt beasts. You can get more powerful stuff just by hunting the beast. You don't even have to be the one that kills it anymore. Yeah. Much to Shord's pleasure, something he disliked in the original one. But also then, after you've hunted two beasts, you can hunt the god, the main god. In our case, Loki... 
Sean's unhappy because he had a whole big plan to win and then Loki <laughs> moved. Sean triggered him moving. He had no option, but that doesn't mean you don't mock him for it. Sean triggered him moving. I loved the hunt mechanism. I think it was different. It, it means that your hero actually meant something. It wasn't just like a, a super soldier. It was something that had a whole different game going on that was linked to what was going on within the game because you can use your your hero to usurp areas and add to your area control, but only in almost sort of undefended areas. I thought that was great because then there's a use for them going off hunting beasts and that was an interesting mechanism and the combat with the cards felt cool. And I thought the whole blend of those three mechanisms was really the key to whether I love the game or not. Yeah, and especially in the game that myself, you and Rachel played, three-player game, we all went down different routes. Now, I'll blow a bit of smoke up Ronan's bottom. Ronan is very good at games like this. He, he loves a bit of subterfuge. He loves the, uh, oh, oh, I'm going to go and do this, uh, but then really in behind his back doing something else, and he's very good at it. But essentially, we all went down three different paths. Rachel went for the straight-up area control. She was tickling around the temple control as well. I went straight for the monster chasing after Loki. And Ronan ended up winning the game by taking the temple control on the last turn of the game, which was it was a moment of genius. He did very well, I will, I will say that. It's not often I praise him, but when he does well, <laughs> I'm getting abusive, abuse down there camera at me now and i thought they were very very balanced in that we all had a chance of winning that in that last turn well they self-balance don't they in terms of you talking about the pace of the game yeah i guess so i think you could hunt very well and concentrate on doing that but that would allow the opportunity for the other players to be more successful in their control of the map yeah and that's what might balance that that you can't just ignore any area of it even if you're not going for that kill the god win just hunting gets you enough stuff back. It's hard enough to get little bonuses that getting those, it's worth it. If you're there, give it a go. I think that one of the things I absolutely loved was the blessings in that they are what allowed you to specialise to some degree. So at certain points in the game, you do a draft of these blessings that come in and they can give you special powers or a slight edge or you're better at attacking or you've got a... Mine was be able to port between shrines, which is... Yeah, yeah. That's why you love the blessings. That blooming card. (laughs) But even the plus one in attack meant that suddenly my strategy changed a bit and I became much more attacking because I had that, that edge on doing it. So I wasn't forcing them again to go in a certain direction. Once the game started taking a bit of shape, then I could draft special powers, which I could then use to either tweak or supplement what I was trying to do to win. And I very much enjoyed that. There's lots of things that come in during the game, but they don't overwhelm you. They just come in little trickles. So you don't you only get like three blessings during the game. And that was on the easier side that we played. We played with the three blessing side. They come in and you can look at them. You can think, right, I can manipulate that now. They come in at the right times or feel like they come at the right times. And the rewards from the chasing the monsters, it's a trickle. It's not a deluge. And it just all kind of ekes you down the path, but doesn't overwhelm you and keeps you enjoying what's in front of you, the battles and the chasing of the monsters and everything about the game. Yes. What's funny to me is it the same I found with Lords of Hellas, Lords of Ragnarok, it's got this whole thing of suddenly of building these monuments and these giant statues and invoking the gods. And yet again, we barely built the monuments. We certainly never finished any. It seems like something that's supposed to be a huge key to the game. We never do. In Lords of Hellas, one of the ways of winning the game 
was to complete one of the statues and then defend it for, I think, three rounds. So it was much more important in Hadass to build those. But the option's always there. And that's that's what I like, that you didn't you weren't focused. But they also are quite important when you're getting those priests and utilising the, the plinths on the statues. Then they are very important to the game. Oh, yeah, up your stats and stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's a physical thing. That's what I'm... No, no, I agree. I agree, yeah. It's, it's weird that you might not complete any of the statues and probably won't complete any of the statues i think we got to within zeus's head of completing one of the three so probably wasn't zeus's head was it not zeus no what am i talking about odin probably. sorry odin's head probably wasn't <laughs> zeus's mate probably. sorry to break that to you right lords of ragnarok it was a rough start come on awaken realms i'm getting kind of bored of these rubbish rule books now but it is a refinement and improvement of an already good game i very much want to play more lords of ragnarok and it got for me an 84. For me, it was a wonderful table presence, as it always is, with Awaken Realms, streamlined from Hellas, which made a lot of sense. Ronan's mentioned the monster hunting being a lot fairer, which really cheered me up. I thought they were really tense round. The last round we played with Ronan and Rachel was so tense. Ronan was literally bouncing on his seat. That's the sign of a great game. Good, clever play rewarded, and I really enjoyed my games of Lords of Ragnarok and for me it's going to be an 88. Oh well Sean. Revive one to four players two hour game 2022 from Aporta Games designed by Helga Meisner Ida Svensson Anna Vermland and Christian Amundsen Ostby each player starts with a hand of cards their own little board and there's a shared board we're going to play on on your turn you're either going to rest reset a bunch of stuff or you're going to take two actions the actions you can take are to play cards to slots, which will give you resources. You can take tribe actions because everyone gets an individual tribe. Or you can sort of move along these tracks, which are on your individual board, which are machine tracks, they're called. And they're either going to give you little bonuses as you move along them during various things in the game. Or they unlock spaces for machines, which you draft from a market. When you put them in there, there is a resource in the game, which is energy. And between resets, you have a certain amount of energy to spend to operate machines to assist you in taking actions, which will generally be the actions you take on the board, because the rest of your actions are all about interacting with the board. You can explore and flip over tiles. Tiles will have four spaces on them. They will either have sort of terrain, which if you build a segment next to will move you along the machine tracks, or they'll have city spaces in which you'll be able to put people, and then from where you put your people and your settlements, you can move along, because range is a very important thing within the game, and you always have to pay one of the resources in the game in order for how far away from one of your pieces on the central board you're trying to do stuff. So you're spreading out from this central chasm, and you're trying to move out and get to the edges in order to score points for everything that you are doing. There are also ways in which you're going to collect these artifacts because by going up various areas and tracks in the game, you collect artifacts, you get an individual VP scoring thing that will tell you for every purple artifact you've collected in this game, you score two VPs for every segment you have, da 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 every person you have, da 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 And that sets individual goals for you to try and strive for within the shared board we're all playing on and the individual board that you are driving up. Once a certain number of artifacts have been taken and that's player number dependent, you are going to add together a load of these bonus endgame scoring points to points you scored during the game by putting people on the board, 
developing your tribe, unlocking individual powers for yourself by settling in this four major cities around the outside of the board. They'll give you endgame scoring and various other things. And it is a blend between managing your deck of cards because you're able to bring more cards in, managing your resources, unlock your bonuses from your own machine track, and then using that individual game you're doing to interact onto the board to actually turn it all into points. Sean, Revive made quite a splash at last lesson. It certainly sold out very quickly. You were not sure about the look of it. Have you had a better look since? I wasn't sure about it. And also what I'm not sure about is I, can't, I don't know what you think about this game, so it's going to be interesting. I'm a mystery. <laughs> you are a mystery. Yeah, it did make a massive splash at Essen. And since Essen, I've only heard great things about it from the people that I know who bought it at the time, apart from yourself, who's keeping your cards close to your chest. One of my major issues of it, and one of the few criticisms that I could find, is that board, very busy looking, both your own player board and the central board. How easy to navigate that board at both boards, was it? I thought the central board was okay. I think the whole look is sort of of modern quality, but in a dated style, and nothing looks very clean. It's sort of like everything is textured graphically, which means that you don't have that clear thing of able to look and just immediately assimilate all the information you want. I think the central board is actually fine because your interaction with it is not that complicated. You're either putting a settlement in a sand space, you can see what the sand spaces are, and getting stuff for everything around it, or you people go into city spaces and it's quite clear which the city spaces are. They are not the same as settlement spaces. So because it's quite simple what you do on the main board, I wasn't that worried by it. I think your own board, the tracks are sort of wiggledy and there are certain spaces where you have to be a certain number on one track and then a certain number on another track to unlock them. And that isn't always intuitive. And people do sometimes miss and you do look at the board and go, do you know, you've unlocked that machine space. And they're like, oh, and they could have had something and, and they could have given them a little bonus on actions that they've been doing. And it, it could be important. I don't mind the look. It is at least different. It's just, it feels busy, but functionally it's actually okay. The other slight concern when I had a look at this before, Essen, was that it looked, from what I can see from the rule book, that sometimes your actions could randomly benefit somebody else more than you. So you're going to uncover something and then somebody else goes, oh, yeah, that benefits me. I get loads of them. That ha, ha, sucks to be you. And you can't really plan for it. Is that true or am I talking nonsense? No, so when you explore tiles on the board, you flip them over, but you choose the orientation. You're never quite able to put it wherever you want it. Now, you won't be on that tile yet it's not within the game. It's if people are adjacent to where you're unlocking, you're at risk of giving them something. But you know before you flip it whether you're adjacent to that tile or someone else is adjacent to it. You may still want to flip it because of your range. It's quite expensive to do big leaps of range and try and leap over someone. You might want to do this incremental move along. You're aware of the state of what you're doing, and you do have sort of two choices of which way to put it down. I'm not going to consider that to be a major issue. My always, my always question. That's not that's not English. That's good English. What's your always question? <laughs> my always question is: Is there any theme to it? Is there any story behind it? Am I, is there an arc to it? Like, am I, what am I doing? Who am I? You are a leader of a tribe. We've been living underground during an apocalypse. The world has now become slightly more livable and you are spreading out from this chasm, out exploring the world, discovering there are settlements, and making contact with various peoples, and building our own settlements. That's the theme. You see Euro? <laughs> yeah. 
I guess it feels like you're exploring because you're flipping over tiles, you don't know what's there. It does feel like you're spreading out. It does feel like you're sort of finding your feet and getting more powerful. There's this campaign system that I think was slightly over-egged. You sort of are supposed to play these first five games gradually unlocking rules. So the first game is just as per the rule book. It's very small changes. Certainly the second game, very small change. But each change, what it does do is it makes the game more interactive. And I feel like that if you played a game with like you know, game five rules, which again, not that, but, but it brings in more interactive tribes. It brings in ways of sort of interacting with spaces on the board, which makes them cheaper for you or more expensive for other people, or it can change your range. And there's, there's lots of different effects these, these things have. If you played a game with game five rules against a newbie, you'd beat them because there's enough of a puzzle to work out. It does take a little bit of, how, does this, how do I play this well? And you do sort of get a bit better. And I think it's a very gentle, incremental change. But for once, I don't think it's such a bad idea to go through those gentle, incremental changes until you get to that level five. Now, if you're an uber gamer and you like, sure, get them all out, play with the full rules and go for it. It's not that hard. And there's basically one card for game two, three, four and five that tells you what the new rules are. So by all means, go ahead and go that. I have been sold on it by other people. And I own the game now, and I'm looking forward to getting it to the table in the fairly near future. What are your thoughts on it? Well, it's a contrast between the very solo bonus building and building up your board and working out what your priorities there and how you want to trigger your own combos, as opposed to the head-to-head race on the board. Now, there's a lot of space on the board. Far more space than you need, even in a four-player game. And I've never had all the tiles flipped over. What's more important is that you drive towards the corners and focus on, if I get a person in that corner, I get lots of endgame points for doing that. You get this card at the beginning that gives you endgame scoring for artefacts. If you can get a city, randomly they get drawn, a city that combos with your card, and you can get some of those colour artefacts, you have got a big advantage over people who don't have that combo. And I think that those two scorings should have been exclusive. Now, the scoring has never actually felt that important in any of my games because there's a very solo puzzle aspect to it. And for me, this tiptoes the line of being too bonus-tastic and just triggering my own little thing and my own little cards and I'm doing my own thing over here as opposed to what I'm doing there and I'm adjusting to what's going on. Where it's different to other games like that to me is that it's quick turns. When you're doing something, you do, apart from the AP, which does happen because you are trying to win this puzzle, it's quick stuff that you're doing. You're not getting blocked out in your chain. You can usually work out a way around or at least realise, right, I can't do it this turn, but I can do these simple things to generate the extra resources I now need to do it because you made it slightly harder. But that turn's going to come around quickly. It's not a 10 or 15 minute wait now to do that thing. So it doesn't feel as frustrating as in other games that have this similar, you're slightly blocking me out. You're slightly messing with my own thing I'm doing. I was not fussed by it initially. I'm starting to like it more. I'm giving Revive a 71 and rising. Okay, interesting. It hasn't put me off. I'm liking a lot of the things you're saying. So cool. I'd look I think that you would like it a lot. I think you and Rachel could sit down playing this many times. You'd enjoy it. <laughs> It's one of those icky, icky games. <laughs> a bit. Cool. All right. The next game we want to talk about is Carnegie from Quinnard Games and designed by Xavier George. 
Carnegie is all about you being a disciple or minion of Carnegie and trying to sort of follow in his footsteps and build up. Was, was he a, was he a cult leader? Or he <laughs> a disciple or minion? Maybe we don't know. It hasn't come out yet. Within the game, it is various things. It is a worker placement game. It is a route building game, and it is an economy game. How is it a worker placement game? Okay, it's a worker movement game. You're moving it's an action selection the game. It's definitely not a worker placement game. You reckon? Okay, cool. I'll, I'll go with that action selection game. There are two ways in which you use your workers. You have your own player board, which forms departments, and the departments do various actions within the game. And what you have to do is move your workers around the departments to power them, to strengthen them or weaken them, and you've only got a finite number of workers, and there's other places for the workers to go as well. So you've got to plan in advance, you've got to plan, right, if something's coming out, then I've got to have my workers in the right place. And why is that? Because when you choose your action, you are choosing what type of building activates, and you're also choosing... The second part of the game is what area on the map activates. And that's where the workers also go to. You are sending your workers out to the various areas on the map. And then you are bringing the workers back onto your tableau. But they're going to give you an income of sorts. Lots of tracks you're going up on. Lots of things to give you more income. And it's all about, I feel... The timing of when you do things. It's a timing game it's at its heart. That's interesting. You would focus on timing because you almost made this sound like a bland modern Euro with lots of tracks to go out <laughs> and you go in. It's a hard game to describe because it's a little bit different. and A little bit old-fashioned? Is it old-fashioned or is it innovative? It flits between the two. Oh, we've got timing, we've got old-fashioned or innovative, or a flitter. Let's go with timing <laughs> first. One of the funniest things to me in this is, funny in that it enrages people, you can directly see where people have put their workers. <laughs> take them for the board, they come in exhausted, and they're useless. And until they get moved out, then they're going to be useless. But it takes someone to choose the action to trigger the type of department that allows movement within departments for people to get their workers back. One of my favourite things to do in Carnegie is to look around, play slightly in a different rhythm to the other players and be able to choose actions while their workers are all knackered. It's just one of my favourite things to do. And there's definitely a time in here because if they want a particular action and you will tend to form strategies that prefer two or three of the four departments and so you can't be good at all four really... If you can time to take the finite number of those actions when they want it, but they're not set up to do it, you're killing part of their game and it becomes very interactive. And that action selection, which in a lot of games becomes quite bland. Oh, you choose that. Okay, we all get income. Oh, you choose production. Okay, we all choose production. In this can be a real driver of which strategies have been chosen around the table and when to time to rush one or alternatively, when to realise someone's about to choose that action and I'm not ready for it, I need to rush to get everything into place. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. I play it slightly less mean, but still, <laughs> definitely, definitely has that sort of planning for that action to get to happen. If you see the east is about to be triggered and you've got no workers in the east, you need to get workers out onto the east, otherwise you get no income for that round. 
absolutely, and I felt that that was the most important part of the game. That's why I went straight to timing. That is only the most important part of the game if you choose for it to be the most important part of the game. There are different strategies. For example, if you go for a strategy of no study so that you're not pushing up on those transport tracks and you're building up your own departments a lot and going for donations, then you really don't care about that. And this is where the interaction comes in, where you might think it's important to go for it, but I'm never selecting it. I don't care. And the, in fact, the only time I'll select it is when you haven't got someone there, and I'll just do it deliberately because I don't care about it. And you have to be aware that I don't care. And then you have to be aware of what I'm likely to choose because if you've gone for it, you need a position of trigger every single time. And then there's the thing of like, you might have three workers in the East. We'd have to bring them all back. You only have to bring one back to trigger your own income from the infrastructure you've built. But if you bring them all back, you get three times whatever your East area income is. Do you need that money right now? And the other players can see this and see what your choices are because it's very nicely made and laid out. So when someone starts going down a slightly different strategy, it affects everyone at the table because there's only 20 actions to be chosen in the whole game. Although you might have lots of sub-actions within that one action, it's only going to get triggered a set number of times. If that's your thing you're doing, Sean, you better be ready to do it every time that that is chosen. Yeah, oh, definitely. And uh, you just touched on there's decisions within decisions as well. Not every decision is a straight up, okay, I'll take that one worker back. As I said, do I take two workers back? How far do I push up that track? What department do I bring in? When am I going to trigger that department? Do I really push hard for one type of department so that I get the maximum benefit of that? Do I spread it out? There's so many little decisions within the major frame of decisions. But that's what I think is the, the genius, almost, of this game. Big word. Genius. Early mm. doors. Like, yes, you're going for transport bonuses, so you're going to get early builds out and want to go for loads of study so that you can constantly push up those transport bonuses earlier. If someone's just trying to be, have someone in the East come back and forget transport bonus they want their own building income they need to have very much fewer departments and you can see they've got fewer departments i'm going to pull you back to that innovative to old-fashioned i'm going to say that the way that you set up your workers is a throwback to flexible action selection systems of the past almost like assigning action points but it's a pool of action points that's very curated by me and he's done so in a couple of steps, which is, I think, the modern feel of it. I control how many action points I have available for each of these four types of actions. And I control me to have each time when it's triggered. So if you trigger a study and I haven't got anyone in my study departments, I've, in effect, chosen that I have no action points for that. But if I've loaded up a study and yeah. you ch- they get chosen, I've got 13 study. And the fact that I'm in charge of, in effect, these action points, and I keep saying it, it's not really action points, but that's what it feels like. I think that, that is absolutely the modern part to this in an old-fashioned, very clean action system. You might choose to put things in certain places, but you've got the barrier of having to move them and having a certain amount of movement for them. So I would say that's actually my least favourite part of the game. I don't enjoy having to move the workers around. I see why I have to do it. And it's a very clever system, but find it a little bit tedious and frustrating just having to do you know what? workers around. Do you know what? In Darwin's journey, that wouldn't <laughs> exist. I'm serious. In Darwin's journey, it will let you take all your actions every time. It's all right, honey. You have as much stuff as you want. 
This makes you prioritize. And that's why to me it feels older fashioned. It feels more vicious of like, I can play badly and really get this wrong. I can, in Diamond Journey, I'm going to get loads of crap. In Carnegie, I really might not. I've got to have a good plan. I agree. I agree. And this is where we sort of diverge, isn't it? It's, I, I love being able to do everything I can possibly do. You like being made to work for literally everything you get. So, But I do appreciate it in the Carnegie. I really do appreciate it. I see the beauty of the mechanism in itself. I just don't always enjoy it. I, I understand it. I can get quite good at it sometimes. It just feels a little bit tedious and frustrating. But as I said, it funds the rest of the game and it makes the rest of the game so enjoyable. What are your thoughts on the... So the department market is limited. With four players, there's two of everything and there are alternative departments you can bring in. In two players... You're very limited in the departments in the game with three at somewhere in the middle. And you can definitely deny someone. And if someone buys the only second lobby in the game, and that was an important part of your strategy, you might have to flip around. Off the things where I'm saying you can sort of stitch people up on timings and when you do stuff, that's situational. The absolute dagger is denying people those departments they might want for their strategy. How do you feel about that? I've only played it two-player. and I've played it a few times two-player. And... Yeah, I spotted that straight away. So I tend to stay away from the departments. I don't hang too much hope on getting the right departments. If there's something available and I can get it, I'll look and I'll say, right, okay, yes, that's good for me in the moment. But I don't really plan or haven't so far really planned around getting multiple departments onto my tableau. I have a feeling that you always play this to have workers on the board and triggering your income all the time. <laughs> you <laughs> like always do the same strategy. Economy boy will be economy boy. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm listening to you, and that's what it sounds like. Right. So for some reason, at the end, we're doing this. Components and theme. Components. Quality, non-flashy production. Apart from the money, I'll let you have your moment on the money. And, Sean, miracle of miracle, decent, useful game trays. This is with the deluxe version, I believe, or have they all got that? I think it's just the deluxe version of the trays. I thought there was only one version of A1, am I wrong? No, there is a deluxe version and a standard version. I'll take it all back. Sorry, <laughs> I, I kick-started it. I have got the deluxe version. The trays are among the most functional trays I've ever seen in a board game. Absolutely brilliant. You just literally flip the lid and you're almost good to go once you take out your little dobby-dobbies that slide in the side. The money, and I actually texted you when I first saw the money, best cardboard money ever. It's amazing. It's better than coin, proper metal coins. It's so cool. Shiny, shiny little banknotes. Awesome. While I agree with you, it makes so little difference. <laughs> but sure, it's lovely. It makes me happy. <laughs> it could have been crappy. I wouldn't have cared. Right. Theme. Now, the theme of... It being about Andrew Carnegie is controversial. A very interesting story. Gave away a lot of money towards the end of their life. However, lots of hurtful and hateful aspects to that. It is of controversy. I'm not sure that they had to make it about Carnegie. It could have been general Victorian industrialists because we're not playing as Carnegie and we're not even necessarily building the exact things that were built in his name. So that was a choice. However, what it does link in is that at the end, all of the final actions will all allow for the making of donations, 
which in effect, with doing it in a, in a nicer way, if you like, money equals VP in this game. It just doesn't equal VP. You've got to make donations and it makes it interactive. We can't usually have the same donations as each other. I think it was a clever way of making money equal VP and be like, try and make lots of money in your last few turns because if you've got lots of money, you'll score lots of points. I actually hadn't thought that. That actually does make a lot of sense in that they've combated the use of Carnegie. But then again, I'm thinking, like you did, why, why bother? Yes, he's a famous industrialist and what have you, but yeah, the shady dealings, like you could have made it a nondescript person or, or another industrialist. I'm sure there's a nice one out there somewhere. But There probably wasn't. <laughs> and what's the chance of there being a Victorian industrialist whose moral compass aligns with ours today? Probably not. Probably not. No, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd never thought about it that way. But yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Cool. I'm ready to sum up. Absolute belter, Sean. Best Euro in a long, long time. Clean, interactive, tight, but room for various strategies. Fantastic production. It is going to be very, very hard to top my first impressions of Carnegie this is my game of a very high quality episode and it's got a 90 from me. I thoroughly enjoyed the engine building and the speculation aspect of sending those workers out and just reading the table almost. Building up your own tableau, I say every time there's a type of game, I, I love it. So it's it's a wonderful aspect of any game for me. Love the clean but attractive look, the Iona tool artwork. It all came together to make a really strong impression and not quite up there with Ronan, but for me, Carnegie is an 86. Right. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Shadow of the Past, two to five player game, 60 to 90 minutes, 2016, from Kevin Wilson and IDW. It is a one versus many game. The many are the turtles. Each individual turtle has their own individual powers and individual dice, and each turn they're gonna roll them and they're gonna lay them out. And for the most part, apart from the one loner, you're going to be able to use the die that is at the end of the turtle next to you. And you can line them up yourself. So you can talk to each other and work each other out. And which what symbol do you need? And the symbols are going to allow you to move a certain amount, attack, defend when you get attacked, and possibly be spent to use special powers because each turtle has got a little hand of special moves. You choose certain numbers for each scenario and you use them using dice combos. And what you're trying to do, you're trying to go against the baddie who is the one. The baddie has got a certain number of foes. There'll be basic minions, thugs, ninjas, and some of the baddies from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic books, which this is based on. And using a hand of cards, so like each foe that's in there, a certain number of cards goes into a deck. You shuffle them up, you draw, you have a hand of five cards, and on your turn you can play two cards, and it will trigger certain of your figures on the board and allow them to move and shoot. And if they're bosses, possibly use special powers. The turtles have a goal to get to, be it kill someone, get to somewhere, smash up some cargo, whatever it might be, moving around a square grid map. And the foe has also got either last a certain number of rounds, take out a turtle, have a turtle KO to more than one round, whatever it might be. And you're playing against each other, a team versus many. Any quick thoughts on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Shadows of the Past? Have you played any of the other ones? Uh, the other uh, hero turtle games? Ninja turtle games, even. Hero turtle, all right. 
<laughs> that was the UK version when it first came out. Because <laughs> ninjas were dangerous. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> Too dangerous for us. Lightning uh, Have I played any of the like other 500 turtle games that are uh, which, which What is, is this question? Which is my point. Is that I couldn't work out which game you had, and I tailed it in my hand and looked at it. I still couldn't tell you what game you had. I had to text you. Like, what was that game? Because there's so many turtle games. They are all blending into one. It's hard to decipher. This is the IDW one by Kevin Wilson, the very respected FFG designer. Well, very, very ex now. He made a one versus many game. He's followed this up the system. So there was many sequels to this, expansions and standalone expansions. And then he followed up with Batman, the animated series, started with Shadow of the Bat, and there have been several follow-ups from there. So he took the system within this one of the dice versus the cards, the many versus one, the special powers for characters on a map, and he is definitely advanced it and used it again and again so this is the start of a series of games which don't have their own family of games or bgg and someone needs to see to that but not me cool the aspect that i really was drawn to was the you triggering off the person next to you or the, the turtle next to you's dice it's kind of a, a more evolved if you play version. with a turtle next to you you're probably not going to get much <laughs> feedback i'm just throwing it out there it's kind of an evolved version of marvel united where you trigger off the last card that the last player played and then you trigger that's part of your turn and i i like that aspect it's a very easy but clever cooperative gameplay system does it feel like that when you play it I've only been the baddie, but it certainly seemed to. It definitely created conversation when they were planning there to plan together. It, I think it also mitigates against bad dice rolls. There's two ways you mitigate against bad dice rolls so you don't feel powerless. If I don't roll any movement, well, if anyone either side of me has, I can move. I'm not stuck. Also, there are special uh, chi symbols which allow you to heal one, and then you can choose any symbol on the die for that as well. So the game doesn't stick you down and, and make it feel hard with the dice system. I think it's designed with younger players in mind overall, and they didn't want it to be frustrating, but I like the fact that it forced conversation. You have to plan as a team. So I think it is a very good aspect. I haven't really got much more. I'm not a big fan of one versus many, but we've been through that ad autumn. Yeah, what do you think? I think the system is great. I think it's got very high potential. In Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shadows of the Past, the problem is the scenarios are bad, and the maps are worse. On the maps, there are lots of single lane or two lane corridors and figures can't move through each other. The rhythm of the game is forced and is forced to be quick. Again, I think for younger players. But as the bad guy, I had to play as a DM, but as in dungeon master, as in facilitating fun, not play to win. Because if I played to win, I would just block all the time and the turtles could never get through to what they were trying to do. And then no one's having any fun. So I had to leave sort of pathways through to give them the chance if they pulled something off to be able to actually progress. Because otherwise I could just line up these corridors and they just walk up, attack, move one space, attack. Then the turtle behind them can't get past them to even do any attacks. They do ranged ones maybe. And it's just, right, fine, now I run the ones behind in to block up the spaces that you've left. And poorly designed scenarios, I'm afraid. But... The idea and the system, I think, has got a lot of promise to it. So I gave Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Shadows of the Past a 49. I'm not in any hurry to play it again. But I do want to play that Batman game, the animated series, Shadows of the Bat. It is more highly rated. It is a theme that I'm more interested in. And I'm hoping that they've pitched a bit higher up in terms of the gameplay. And it wouldn't be so simplistic and stodgy. 
There you go. Okay, I am going to talk about Tipperary. It's from Lookout Games and Gunter Burkhart. And Tipperary is a very quick playing game where you're effectively laying tiles to form a village. On your turn, you spin a spinner and on your icon, whatever tiles are in front of it, you're going to get a choice of two tiles. You're putting those tiles around your village to do various things. You are trying to get sheep together in a contiguous formation to score points at the end of the game. Biggest one gets a, a reward. There are castles that you can play, very similar to the one tiles in Patchwork, where you just fill in spaces in. There are things that increase your whiskey production. Ronan loves the sheep and whiskey game. <laughs> and oh, is it set in Scotland or Ireland? <laughs> oh, sheep and whiskey, please. And that, that's just oh, going to score your points and that allow you to add more sheep. There's Bogland that gives you little extra tiles that you can add. Lots of little tickles of scoring. And you're also scoring a rectangle or square shape at the end of the game. Your, your biggest filled-in rectangle shape at the end. So very quick playing game i bought it but i wasn't expecting the world from it i was slightly surprised did you know what uh tipperary actually means in gaelic no but i know it's a long way you had to do it i did it actually means planet unknown at a suitable play then <laughs> you're an idiot <laughs> that's what it means why well, didn't make the language plum I, you know I love Planet Unknown. So I'm not going to diss Planet Unknown. There are similarities with the spinny spinny, but you don't choose what you get. And yeah, I'm not going to diss it. So yeah. But you don't choose what you get in Planet Unknown most turns. It felt very like the difference in the randomness and the tiles I'm getting. There wasn't much difference here. <laughs> like, yeah, I get random tiles all the time rather than most of the time. I'm getting random polyomino tiles and I'm trying to fit them in and there's various terrains and there's various reasons for putting different ones by different ones. And there are much fewer mechanisms here and yet the playtime is about a fifth, if not less, than that of Planet Unknown. Yeah, but I think the choices you're making are slightly deeper in Planet Unknown. You, you're, you're having to fit things in and make sure you plan properly to score going up your tracks. I think it's a, it's a deeper version for sure. There are similarities, but I think this is the filler version of it, possibly. I think that it runs into the same issue that Planet Unknown ran into. And what Planet Unknown did was come up with a whole load of mental planets and corporations which just twist your head and aren't necessarily balanced, but are quite fun. And it's replayability. Because there's not a lot of variety in Tipperary. Now, the onus on replayability is not necessarily as strong because this is a 15, literally a 15-minute game. So I don't need massive amounts of variety on playing the game 15 minutes just to satisfy me. And yet, the major drawback, I think, for me, of being one that I would feel like would need to be in my collection would be Game 10 is going to be the same as Game 1. I agree. I think Game 10 will be the same as uh, Game 1 to a degree. But you are sort of making those very small decisions, but meaningful decisions, and going after the different things. You're not necessarily always going to go after barrels or you're trying to get those uh, wheat fields next to the breweries. You, you might you might go down a slightly different path. It's not, it doesn't, But it doesn't mean much because it's so quick. And that is why... I don't, it's not, it always means something. <laughs> always. I don't really have many fillers in my collection. And that was why I was actually quite glad it played so quickly. I think if this went even 10 minutes longer, it wouldn't be a good game. But because it's that short, 
think it makes it a good game. It's quite addictive. It's quite, I think I could do that better. I think I could squeeze that out. Oh, I should have made that into an 8x7 and scored 56 points for that instead of an idiot. And so I end up being a 3x4. <laughs> and I'm not quite sure how I did that. It's quick. It's fun. It gives me almost everything Planet Unknown gave me. And it's a 70. I like it, Sean. I'm always worried bringing a sheep and whiskey game to Rome. That not at least mm, 57 points from the score. <laughs> As I've already said kind of what I what I thought. It's just so quick and so fun. Moorish is definitely the word or addictive. And it's staying in my collection. I'm going to give it a 72. We were pretty close we, there. Yeah, we were. And... To finish us off with it, we want to talk about a game that we, I think we treasure hunted, didn't we? I don't know. I think we treasure hunted it, and I think we both thought it was utter crud. So it'll be interesting to see what you think. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Vengeance Roll and Fight. One to four players, 30 minutes long for Mighty Boards. Designed by Gordon Kaleha, Norrily Lubbers, and David Tuxi. It is, as above, pretty much a solo puzzle. However, this time it's with real-time dice. In which you choose a person who is out for vengeance and each of them has got slightly different powers and skills which will be activated by the dice. You choose a map and there are various ones and they are all different. They have rooms, they have minions, they have bosses and they have goals on them. We're going to play over four rounds. At the beginning of each round there's going to be this montage phase where dice get rolled and they come up with different dice faces and they're different to the action dice completely and you're going to use them to personalise your board. So each fighter can be developed in certain ways and you can go after unlocking more powers you can use your dice for, you can unlock more health, you can unlock more points straight up, or just different things you can do. So playing with the fighters isn't necessarily the same every time you do it. The next phase of each round is there's going to be a pool of action dice and the number in there is dependent upon the number of players and... You're going to grab four and you roll them. And there are bad things you have on there which are going to cause you damage. If you have take too much damage, that's a terrible idea. And it will lock up dice. You're looking to carry on rolling to unlock them or just take the damage that you've already rolled. However, the symbols you have will be able to be placed on the powers of your fighter and the extra powers you've unlocked for your fighter. And when you fill them up, you get to take more to refill your, your hand of four, roll again, put them on your action, take more out of the pool. And all the while you're doing this, the pool is shrinking down, 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 and you're doing it in real time against the other players. And the quicker you can roll and the quicker you can match, the more dice you're likely to have access to. You then do a resolution phase in which the powers you have charged up with the dice you have rolled, they allow you to move and shoot and take out minions in the various rooms and go after generally either trying to get to the boss and knocking down their health, you'll score points for all the health you've taken off them, or clearing out minions and going after different goals on the map, like killing all the ones that can shoot you from a room away, for example. If you end up in a room and there's minions alive that can shoot you from a room away, they'll shoot you and cause damage. And like I said before, taking damage is a bad idea. Once you've done your few moves on your map, you mark it out with a, with a white marker. We then do another montage, whereby we're going to upgrade a little bit. We then do real-time rolling, fire up our powers, and then use our powers on the map. At the end of four rounds, we're going to check and see who scored the most points by attacking the boss, fulfilling goals, getting the most experience, and whoever scored the most points is the winner of Vengeance, Roll and Fire, and it all happens in about 30 minutes. Sean, I know now why you listen to this rubbish, because it is frantic, real-time dice rolling. 
I know that I had my reservations because I had played the bigger version of it and felt like it was too much faff for too little return. Okay. You are our real-time guru in that you tolerate real-time and I don't or very rarely anyway is it good real-time does it is it meaningful or is it just chaotic nonsense (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna say chaotic nonsense no matter what I say uh no I thought it was good real-time because and here's the key to it I wasn't sure and then I was getting taught it and then I thought that real-time roll I get a move on the gun I choose my move and shoot power Take the dice off and then I roll and I can do it again. It's like, and it, no, 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 no. That power lets you move once. That power lets you move and punch. That power lets you shoot once. Your powers are very limited. <laughs> very limited. So you are like, I need to unlock all of these or I'll do nothing this round. It, it's not repetitive play. It is actually competitive. You're desperate to get as many dice as possible in useful places. Now, everywhere you put them is useful. But because you're not exactly planning at the point of real-time rolling what actions you're taking. Well, certainly I wasn't. I was just filling up as many actions as I could. It then left me a little puzzle to work out that I'd made myself of, okay, what can I do? Hmm, right. And then I'm looking at my little map and I'm going, I can move twice. I've got four shots. I could go here and do that. Oh, no, then those two will shoot me at the end. I've got no elf left. I can go that way and shoot those two and that will help me. And then... It was actually quite interesting because you couldn't exactly plan out. You could have a a big word, strategy. It's a very quick game. But then you had to be tactical on what you'd managed to grab during the real-time dice rolling. And I thought that it did give it a kind of thematic, frenetic feel of, I'm jumping in, there's stuff going on, I've just got to make the best of the situation. Lovely. I read some of the comments on BGG. And there was a few mentions of there being a little bit of a barrier to entry. Because essentially the game is quite simple, but there was quite a few fiddly rules for what it was that kind of bogged it down a little bit. Did you find that at all, or is that just silliness? I think knowing the structure of the big game, and then I got taught it well, it all made sense. So I didn't find it fiddly. There were certainly more options than I was expecting. And from the montage, where in a lot of games like this, it would just be an obvious choice. It was like, oh. And you always get a wild thing in the montage as well, which you're like, oh, if I do that and combo those two, I could unlock that. But I'm really short on health. So maybe I should just take the extra health, but then I won't have another action to do this round. So I won't be able to move as far as I was hoping to be able to move. And you're always making compromises on how to get points, when to get points, and what you're doing. Fair enough, fair enough. My last question is, again, based on BGG comments... Is it best at solo? There's a lot of people suggesting that it is. I don't know how it puts the time pressure on you solo, because I haven't played it solo. Right. But to me, the time pressure was part of it. Like, I really felt like I had to get these dice rolled, because you can see the number dwindling, and it dwindles so quickly. You, you know, you're trying to roll. If you get caught in three or four rolls, you haven't got anything, you look up, and there's six dice more gone from this little pool. You're like, how did that happen? Ah! So it, it gives you that frenetic sort of, I'm in a fight feel. I don't know about the solo, mate, but I, certainly I enjoyed the fact that we were rolling against each other. Not everyone's going to enjoy that. It's a personal thing. You'd hate it. Go ahead and say you hate <laughs> it. I probably would, but what is your score for Vengeance Roll and Right? Roll and Fight, sorry. I thought it was decent, actually. I enjoyed myself much more than I thought I was going to. I'm a bit sort of, when would the novelty run out? 
because you are just doing this small puzzle. I would definitely need other people to play with to keep the novelty going. But I was very happy with it and very happy to play again, and I give it a 67. Lovely. Okay, there we go. That's all the games covered. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone. Next time we'll be back with our... 10 more games we haven't played from the years 2012, 2021. Sean, it's our least downloaded episode in quite a long time, so that idea was brilliant. <laughs> I liked the idea. <laughs> I liked it, Ronan. I liked it as well. Well, there you go. <laughs> Apparently the world didn't like it. Fair days, fair days. Maybe they weren't ready for it. Maybe not. Maybe we were just visionaries. <laughs> okay, and as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower for gaming goodness galore. You can catch us on social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to contact us, please do. Obviously, that particular episode didn't hit the mark. Tell us what type of episode you do want, and we'll, we'll, we'll try and make it for you. And to do that, email us at thegamepitspodcast.gmail.com or pop along to our Board Game Geek Guild. Thank you ever so much for listening to The Game Pit, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Boy, 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 boy,